0: Good morning again, everyone. I would love to have you take out your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation. Uh, The book of Revelation, chapter 3. It's the last book in the Bible, and this is our final week of studying these seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation chapters uh, 2 and 3. it's good to be with you all at a Yoder campus as well, even though we can't sort of see each other, I do you get the sense that we're connected um, as campuses across the journey, and so I, I hope you're having a great worship experience there as well this morning. Um, this morning, we gather kind of in the shadow a bit of what's happening in our world. And one of the beautiful things about the scriptures, about God's word, is that it speaks to us in the things that we're dealing with, the things that are immediately at hand. Uh, In fact, the, the reason there are seven letters, there were seven literal churches in Asia Minor that we've been talking about, and this morning we're going to be talking about the church of Laodicea, a church that many of you have probably heard about. It's maybe the most famous letter. But um, seven is also a really sort of um, full and in, uh, number throughout the scriptures. The number seven is a number of completeness and wholeness. So while the, these letters were written, uh, revelation from Jesus through the Apostle John to the churches, the, the idea that there are seven churches, it also communicates that these are for the churches of all time. That the, the message that is spoken through them and to these churches is, is for us today as well. The, the message of comfort, of, of some critique, of promises, they, they speak to us. And so today, um, you know, it would be, I think it would be a missite for us to not just take a minute to talk about the realities going on in our world today, Um that we seem to be moving ever more closely to a conflict. Um, And I say that word conflict is a pretty sanitized word. Um, War, Um, nuclear interaction between uh, us and North Korea. We have a war of words being exchanged where we're using terms like locked and loaded and fire and fury. Um, And let me be clear that there is no such thing as a nuclear war. It's devastation is the only thing that happens. Um, We have in our not too distant memory the realization of what happens when these sorts of weapons get used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and hundreds of thousands of people killed instantly. Hell on earth. And so we gather this morning to celebrate the risen Lord in the shadow of what's happening around us. And then also in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, where racism has taken off its mask and taken to the streets, armed um, with violence. And there's an ugliness there that is just sort of exposed, and it's front and center for us to see. And so we gather also in the shadow of that. Well, we have to talk about the reality of these things because the message of Jesus, the gospel, addresses these things. These things do not surprise God. The ugliness of the human condition and the sin that we sort of um, spread on the world is not a surprising thing to God. And so um, the psalm, Psalm 46, just has been, over the last 24 hours or so, has just been coming back to mind again. So I'd like to just, if you, if you want to turn there, you, you can, but Psalm 46 is a psalm of comfort and hope in the middle of really, really tumultuous times. And these words, uh, many of you probably know them, but I, I'd almost as like them to, to be our sort of opening prayer this morning. The psalms are the prayer book of the church. They've been the prayer book of God's people for thousands of years. And so you can just listen, you can read along, but this may this be our prayer this morning as we gather. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her and she will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, and burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen. Amen. So we uh, will weave back to these uh, to these topics, these things that are just kind of immediately at hand, because I think this letter speaks to them. But I want to talk a little bit, before we read this letter to Laodicea, we'd like to just talk a little bit about the city itself, because I think it'll be helpful in, in understanding and kind of unpacking this final letter to this church in Laodicea. Laodicea was a city that was sort of nestled in the Lycus Valley, and it was... Um, situated between two other pretty prominent cities, Colosse and Hierapolis. Now, you will probably have heard of the city of Colossae because um, we have the letter to the Colossian church. And the interesting thing about this city is there was this um, mountain, sort of snow-covered, snow-capped mountain right behind them. And the interesting thing about this city was that this cold water would run off of the mountaintop and feed the city. And so you had this cold, refreshing water in the city. It was was a wonderful thing. You get spring-fed water right there in the city. Now, just on the other side of Laodicea, there was this city, Heropolis. Now, Heropolis had these natural hot springs. And in fact, you could, if you were walking in or driving into the Lycus Valley, even still today, you can see these sort of white mountains uh, where these mineral deposits are left from all of the hot springs and the minerals in the water. And so they would make these aqueducts and catch all this natural hot water, and they created these public baths. And so people would come from all over the world with ailments uh, to bathe in the waters of Heropolis because they were hot water, they were soothing and refreshing, and people thought that they had healing properties. So you have Laodicea, on the one hand you have Colossae that has this cool, refreshing water, to the other side you have Heropolis that has this warm, restoring water, but in Laodicea the water was worthless. The cold and the warm mixed together, and it was by the time it got there, it was lukewarm, and it had these mineral deposits from the hot water that made it undrinkable. And so you knew that in the city of Laodicea, the water was no good to drink. A couple other things about the city that will help make the letter understandable to us: they were well known for their um, their their wool industry. Uh, That there was this famous black wool that was um, these black sheep that were raised in Laodicea. And so in the first century, you would talk about the black wool of Laodicea, which is sort of this prized material that if you wore this black wool, it was a bit of a status symbol. So they were well-known for that, the black wool of Laodicea. They were also well-known for a medical school, that there was a a medical school in the city, and they specialized in optometry. So... uh, training eye doctors. And one of the unique things was there was this specific rock that they had available to them that if you ground the rock up and made it into a paste or a salve, you would rub it on your eyes and even, they would say, on your ears, and it would bring healing. And so there's this whole industry of, of helping restore sight in the city of Laodicea. And then finally, Laodicea was an incredibly wealthy city. They were a banking center. So you think like modern-day Hong Kong, London, New York City, that was the kind of industry. I mean, banking, people would come from all over the world and invest their money in the banks of Laodicea. In fact, they were so wealthy that in the year 61, the entire city, the entire sort of Lycus Valley, was destroyed by a massive earthquake. And the Roman uh, government... Came in. the emperor came in and said, we'll rebuild your cities. And the other cities all took Roman funding. The city of Laodicea said, no, thank you, we're fine, thank you very much. Uh, We'll rebuild ourselves, because they were rich, they didn't need anything. So, that's Laodicea. Now, let's take a look at what Jesus says to the church of Laodicea. Verse 14, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen- the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and, and white cloth to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them. Uh, with, eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, Jesus is addressing these things that everyone in Laodicea, in fact, everyone around Laodicea, would have known these are. This is who we are, this is our identity, and Jesus uses the things that they're already known for to speak some critique. One of the things about the church of Laodicea is that there's really no affirmation, again. Um, there's really no affirmation for the church. It's a, it's a fairly harsh critique, but Jesus, uh, he says, I critique those who I love. Isn't that a comforting thing to know as disciples of Jesus? If we're loved by Jesus, he's going to rebuke us and discipline us as parents who love their kids. Uh, there's this uh, famous um, Christian leader, uh, Teresa of Avila. Some of you may have heard of her, famous sort of Christian mystic. And she, um, she's well known for having like just been praying and going through this really difficult time in her life. And she said, Lord, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but Lord, why are you so hard on me? And the response she felt from the Lord was saying, this is how I treat my friends. And her response was, well, this is why you have so few of them. Um, That there was this sort of like honest sort of give and take um, with Teresa of Avila. So I kind of like that. Um, But this is what Jesus says. There's this word of critique so that we will repent and turn around. Now Jesus reveals himself here. There are images of the risen Christ. And these are so powerful. The way Jesus reveals himself to this church in Laodicea is absolutely uh, just so brilliant, so beautiful. He says three things. He says, I am the amen, I am the faithful and true witness, and I am the ruler of God's creation. That's who Jesus says he is. He he says he is the amen. What in the world does that mean, that Jesus is the amen? Does that mean he is the open your eyes? Like, as a kid, I thought that's what the word amen means. It means, okay, now everybody open their eyes. Um, It's like... uh, we had a, a pastor who always closed the service with the same benediction from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with his exceeding joy, to God, our Father who alone is wise, to him be exceeding glory, honor forever and ever. Amen. And I knew when he like got to that part, he's like, okay, thank you. Like lunch is almost here. Um, so I but I thought the word amen meant open your eyes, but he doesn't. It doesn't. It means let it be. May it be so. The word amen is a statement of faith that we actually believe what we are saying. When Jesus says he is the amen, he is saying that he is true to his word, like that he is completely true to his word, that he is faithful and good. And not only is Jesus true to his word, but in Jesus, all of the words God has spoken are fulfilled. That in Jesus, all of the God's promises are fulfilled. He is the great amen. Maybe you've wondered why. Why do we pray in the name of Jesus? In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray amen. Why is this a pattern of the church? Well, it comes right out of the Bible. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 to 22, it says this, No matter, No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now, it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us and set his seal of ownership on us, and he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what was to come. In Christ, all of God's promises are fulfilled. They are yes and amen. Every time we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. We are reminding ourselves that God always does what God promises. It's this this amazing sort of reminder that we, we build into our rhythms of prayer that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God. We're reminding ourselves that God is completely faithful. We're reminding ourselves that God is not yet done and that the world is not as it is going to be. That Jesus is right now at work in this world making everything new. And everything God has promised he will do, he will do in Christ and through Christ. He is at work redeeming and restoring everything that was lost, everything that was broken, everything that does not now reflect his goodness and his glory and his love will be burnt away until only that ref- which reflects him will be left. This is the promise of God that is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Jesus says he reveals himself that he is the Lord. He is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler over God's creation. Um, <clears throat> right beside Laodicea, we talked about this, was a city of Colossae. And there's a letter the Apostle Paul writes to the Colossians. And maybe you never caught this before, but if you read the letter of Colossians in the last chapter, Paul makes this little interesting um, note. He says, by the way, when you're done with reading this letter, go ahead and hand it to the Laodiceans. So you can catch that at the end of the letter of Colossians. You can look that up. And so they would have been familiar with this letter Paul had written to the Colossian church. The church in Laodicea. Now, some years later, you know, John writes this. What well, we have is Revelation chapter 3. But when he says these words from Jesus, I am the ruler of God's creation, it almost brings back this echo from Paul's letter earlier to the Colossians and to the Laodiceans. We have it in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Think about this. The sun is the image of the invisible God. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. When Jesus says, I am the ruler of God's creation, there's this echo from Colossians chapter 1. The ascension of Jesus is probably the most least understood and celebrated of all of the sort of things we affirm as Christians. When we celebrate Christmas, the incarnation, God becoming flesh, we celebrate Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus, Uh, we celebrate Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, but we don't necessarily celebrate ascension regularly. And If you think about Jesus right now, like where is Jesus? What's he doing? Well, the doctrine of the ascension says that Jesus is actually seated at the right hand of the Father. Here and now. That he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And at the right hand of the Father is just this metaphor, it's this way of saying that Jesus is the one who is calling the world to task. He is the one who is right now um, bringing his authority and his rule and his reign here on earth as it is in heaven. He is the ruler over God's creation. Our vision as a church uh, is to replicate Jesus. To be disciples who make disciples. And, and the reason this is, is because there is only one in all of creation that's worthy of our allegiance. Would you agree? Like, there is only one in all of creation who is worthy of our allegiance, our devotion, and our imitation. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. There is so much darkness in our world, but we do not need to fear the darkness because Jesus is the Lord of God's creation, the ruler of God's creation. He is the yes and the amen, the faithful and true witness. This world may feel like it is out of control, but our hope is anchored in the one who reigns supreme and in God's kingdom that will never be shaken. Now that does not mean that we just sort of sit back on our hands and say, well, I guess the world is the way God wants it to be. It's not what we do. Because God always chooses to partner with us. God always chooses to say, I'm going to use you and I'm going to bring about my will and my rule and my reign through you and through your gifts and through your resources. I'm going to use you. I'm going to choose to partner with you and to call you into my work, to be my co-workers. And I'm going to empower you to step into this dark world and to be beacons of light. To let the world know that the way things are is not the way they have to be. That things can be different because Jesus is Lord. There. So we worship him, we trust him, we follow him, we pattern our lives after him. We look to the ways of Jesus and the way he confronted evil in his day, and we learn to confront evil in the same way. There's a lot to be nervous about, but there has always been a lot to be nervous about. That's the nature of living in a fallen world. But our job is to bring beauty into the ugliness. Our job is to point to a better way. Our lives are to be an object lesson of love and hope and joy and peace, that they are possible and there is a better way to live. Last night, I um, was just sort of watching the news a lot throughout the day yesterday when I had a free moment just sort of catching up on what was happening in Charlottesville. And uh, maybe some of you were too. Uh, if you haven't, um, watch the news. <laughs> um, uh, just to, to understand what's happening in our world, and just sort of just being distressed, uh, to be real honest, seeing these, these, these men who look like me, who look like many of us, wearing khakis and polos, white skin, they look like they could be me, or my family, or my friends or my neighbors, marching down the streets. Full of hatred, and and just sort of reeling from all of this, and and wrestling with, okay, God, what, how how do I? We're we're removed, you know, we're twelve hundred miles away. This isn't happening in Wichita. This isn't happening in Kansas City, God. What does this mean for us? And just sort of feeling some despair about the way our world is. And I walked outside last night and I sat on our back patio and just started, like, looking up. And it was beautiful. It was kind of a cloudless night last night. It was beautiful. Stars were out. And I was like, I, I think it was a shooting star. And uh, so I'm kind of praying or whatever. It's like, I think that was another one. Uh, and, and I'm like, I think I'm going crazy. So I call Carmen. I'm like, would you come out here and, like, just... Make sure I'm not just seeing things. And sure enough, a couple minutes later, there was another one. I'm like, I wonder if there's a meteor shower tonight. So sure enough, we look it up, and there is a meteor shower happening right now. So in case you didn't know, beautiful thing to watch. Um, But for me, it was just this moment of just kind of realizing the supremacy of Jesus. God, this world is so much bigger then I understand I am not the one who has to hold all the pain, who has to hold all the evil, who has to find remedies for it, that I am entrusting myself to Jesus, that he is Lord, he is the amen, he is the faithful and true witness, and he is doing his work, and yet he wants to use us. See, the, the critique that Jesus has for these Laodiceans is that they're neither, they're neither hot nor cold. And I used to interpret this to mean Jesus really wants us to be either on fire for him, like I think, you know, like on fire for him, or he would almost rather have us be ice cold with our backs turned toward him than kind of lukewarm, like where we're sort of riding the fence and in the middle, like where we have our actions like look like we're on fire for him, but really our heart is cold, like that lukewarm thing. Jesus would rather have us hot or cold. And I don't really think that's what he's saying anymore. And if you want to interpret it that way, that's that's fine. I, I th- I've heard a lot of good sermons like that. You can preach a lot of good sermons like that. But I think what Jesus is saying is look, look to the cities around you. There's hot water that's restoring, and there's cold water that's refreshing, and you have this water that is worthless. It's lukewarm. It's neither hot nor cold, and, and you just spit it out of your mouth. You can't take a bath. Have you ever taken a bath in lukewarm water? It's kind of miserable, right? Um, or have you ever like taken a sip of water and you think it's cold, but it's been setting on the sun a little bit and it's kind of lukewarm and it's not refreshing at all and you just sort of I want to spit it out of your mouth? It's not good for anything. And I think what Jesus is saying is like, you're the church. You're the people called by my name. You're the people who have surrendered your lives to say, I am Lord. You're the ones who pray who pray several times a day, and in the end of your prayers you say, in Jesus' name, amen. You're reminding yourself of who I am, that I am at work restoring this world, and yet you're not restoring anyone or refreshing anyone. You're talking about how you don't need anything, how you're, you're rich enough on your own, and how you see clearly. I think, I think that's the message. That the church, if we are not engaged in the pain. Of our world. I think Jesus has words of critique for us. If we are not seeing the suffering of our world, and if we're not acting to do whatever small acts of faithfulness God may have us do, then there are words of critique for us. The church is meant to impact the world. The church is meant to point to the risen Christ. And the way that he loves and he serves, it is meant to bring refreshing cold water and restoring hot water. And if we're not doing that, then Jesus has some difficult things to say to us. You see, um, this whole idea of um, of racism is nothing new. There is this, uh, there's this passage a couple chapters later, Revelation chapter 7, Uh, You can turn there if you want. Revelation chapter 7, the Apostle John, he gets this vision. He gets this vision of the throne in heaven. And then uh, he he hears these voices, these angels sort of speaking to him. And he he hears that there is this number of people who have been redeemed, who have been saved, who are are in heaven. And the number he hears is 144,000. Hey, there are 144,000 people who have been sealed by Jesus. Now, what strikes you about the number 144,000? That's a very small number. Very small number. Um, There are 7.5 billion people on earth today. Estimates are that there were 108, 110 billion people who have ever lived. And the number John hears is 144,000 people. That's a tiny number. We're all sort of out of luck, right? If that's the number of people who make it into heaven out of 108 billion people people. John hears this, it's, it's exclusive, it's a small sort of restricted number. And in fact, the number, if you go on and read, he hears that there are 12 tribes that descended from Abraham. And of these 12 tribes, there are 12,000 people from each of these tribes, right? This number is numbers, very symbolic, that these are the descendants of Abraham who made it in. And Abraham was the one, if you remember, Abraham and Sarah, who were called sort of out of their way of living and sent into the world to live on mission. They were chosen. They were blessed. God says, I'm going to bless you. But here's the thing. They were not chosen for themselves. And they were not blessed so they could sit back and say, look how blessed and how rich we are. We don't need a thing. They were chosen so they could choose others. They were blessed so they could bless others. God's vision has always been global. It has always been for the least of these. Jesus, or God, in fact, says to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 12, He says, I'm going to bless you so that all people on earth will be blessed through you. There's always this tendency to say, we're the special ones. People who look like us, people who act like us. This idea of white supremacy is nothing new. There's always been a tendency to do that. It's it's us, it's us, it's us. It's people who look and act like us. It's people who speak our language. If you don't speak our language, get out. There's always been that sort of restriction. So John hears 144,000, but he turns, and he sees the throne of Jesus, and do you see what the text says? says he sees. In verse 9, he says, After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John hears a small restrictive number, 144,000, but he turns and he sees a multitude of people with every tone of pigmentation, calling out to God in every language, from every culture, from every ethnicity, this beautiful, multi-ethnic, multicultural group of people that no one can count. John hears restrictive and he sees massively inclusive. The image here is so profound. Brothers and sisters, we are always tempted, we are always tempted to surround ourselves with people who look like us. And who act like us because it's comfortable. That is not what heaven is going to be like. It's not what heaven is going to be like. Heaven is going to be this massive sort of clash of of, of cultures and this beautiful harmony that has never been heard before because God does not care about our skin color. Or the language we speak or the country we come from, God sees us and loves us. And the love of Jesus that he expressed on the cross is indiscriminate. And I don't want to wait until I get to heaven to start living this reality. Because the prayer of our Lord was to say, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what I take from that is that the people who I invite into my house better not all look like me. The people who are part of our church better not all look the same. That if we are to be a foretaste of heaven, if we are are to be a living embodiment of God's will on earth, then, then we better be being cold water, being warm water, be extending a hand across divisions in our world because this is the way of Jesus. This is what Jesus did. There is this massive choir of people around the throne in heaven. And when we, when we step into the darkness, when we cross dividing walls of hostility, be there race or language or gender or ethnicity, we are bearing witness to the way of Jesus. And that's what we're called to do as a church. So, uh, two prayers. I want to just invite us to pray together, and I think we can have these on the screen. Um, hopefully, for you at Yoder, you can just pray these along with us. This first one is a prayer of peace, and the second one is the prayer of St. Francis. And um, sometimes I don't know what to pray, and so it's good, I think, to, to pray prayers that, people, that God's people have prayed through. Generations and generations. So I'd invite you just to, the first one, I will I'll pray this and you just sort of, you can listen, you can make it your prayer in your heart. The second one, we'll pray together. Oh God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the earth and sent your blessed son to preach peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. Grant that people everywhere may seek after you and find you Bring the nations into your fold, pour out your spirit upon all flesh, and hasten the coming of your kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Next slide. So I invite you, let's let's pray this together. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Let's say amen one more time. Amen. Amen.